0: Hello and welcome to Intelligence Talks. I'm Liam Bailey. I'm Head of Research at Knight Frank. Today we're going to be talking about one of the UK's hottest property sectors. It's not life sciences, it's not data centres, it's not living sectors, it's farmland. And a particular spin on the sector is adding to demand, possibly pricing, we're going to find out. And to explain why this most traditional of property sectors is so hot, I'm joined by Knight Frank's Head of Rural Research, Andrew Shirley, and by Isabel Swift, partner in our rural consultancy team. Welcome to you both. Hello, Liam. Hello, Liam. So let's get some data points to start with. Andrew, you've just released your Q1 Farmland Index. What did it reveal about the market?
1: what it shows is that the average value of farmland in England and Wales rose by a further 2% in the first three months of this year, which takes the total annual growth to 11%. So a real sort of inflation-busting performance there.
0: In terms of the buyers, who's who's in the market?
1: Well, we're seeing a real mix of buyers. You've got your traditional tax-driven buyers. You've obviously got agricultural businesses that want to expand. There's also a lot of demand in the market from what we would call environmentally focused buyers. So people who are looking at Natural capital, rewilding, regenerative agriculture, all the sort of the current buzzwords that we're seeing in the world of ESG at the moment.
0: And that issue of natural capital is really the um the driver for today's conversation. So, Isabel, do you want to just introduce the theme and the the, the concept of, of natural capital?
2: Natural capital is in relation to the value of land and natural resources in a way that identifies all of their individual values. So not just in terms of its investment value. So for example, production of food or production of income from the production of food, but also its value to the general public in terms of carbon sequestration, access, because obviously nowadays we're talking about things like well-being and doctors prescribing walking. So it's kind of all of the benefits which land and our natural resources can bring to us all.
0: And this will be new to quite a few of our listeners. So this concept of natural capital, this is, this is an asset class or an emerging asset class in its, in its own right. Is that, is that right?
2: Yes, absolutely. It's something which is um, in development. There are different ways of quantifying it currently and there is research going on all the time. There are people who are undertaking natural capital audits for businesses already and the kind of natural capital... Metric, as
0: it were, is in development. Thanks, Isabel. Let's explain the concept. So, Andrew, who's in the market to buy this uh, this asset class?
1: I mean, it's a whole range of um, people. You've got investment funds that want to sort of take advantage of this natural capital, whether it's to set up, you know, a carbon credits fund, or you've got the more altruistic buyers who want to buy it and rewild it and um, genuinely sort of make a contribution to the environment. You've got people who are looking to sort of offset different types of things, whether that's nutrient neutrality, that kind of thing. So the sort of the environmental covers a whole sort of wide range of different types of buyers, from the purely institutional fund to the private individual who's really interested in benefiting the planet and the environment.
0: But just thinking about that fund, for example, is this an altruistic decision they're making to invest in in this type of asset because they think it's a good thing corporately to be seen to be doing it or is it actually in practical terms helping to offset for example their own carbon usage elsewhere in their in their operations
1: it's a mix there are some investment firms that want to buy it and use the land, as you say, to offset their own carbon emissions. But there are others who want to buy it, create credits and sell those to other people who've got emissions that need to be offset. So it's a real, it's a real mix. Um, the rationale behind why people are doing it, some are commercially driven, some are environmentally driven, and some will be a mix of the two.
0: And just to put a bit more colour on, on this, so Isabel, in terms of your, the, the work you're doing, the consultancy work with clients, just give me a couple of examples of practical things that people are doing in this sector to kind of improve their assets in this way.
2: So we have got clients in each of the different kind of sector headings, the main sector headings at the moment. So we are doing some work for a developer who is looking to buy some biodiversity net gain credits because he is undertaking a development within a local planning authority, which has already introduced a BNG net gain requirement for any development in that area. So anyone in that area developing is having to demonstrate a 10% net gain on biodiversity for that development. So he is seeking to purchase a number of BNG credits to offset the development that he is doing we are approaching landowners who are aware, willing to sell credits to him for that which involves undertaking baseline ecological surveys writing a management plan to determine how many credits can be created and then having those approved by local planning authority we are working for another developer to find water offsetting because a council local to us has put a prohibition on any development that can't demonstrate that they are offsetting their water requirements. And so we are working with a local farmer to do that. And finally, we are in the process of negotiating some phosphate offsetting for another client who is going to terminate their farming enterprise and in return generate a number of phosphate credits which will be sold for development to developers to facilitate their developments.
0: And in terms of your role in in this process, is it effectively putting a kind of value or a kind of a, a metric around those credits, for example, to actually say that, you know, if you do X activity, you will generate X number of credits in this case?
2: So those management requirements for biodiversity, for example, are written by an ecologist who will say your baseline is X. And this is what you need to do in order to generate uplift. The important thing to know is all credits aren't the same. You can't just replace any habitat with another. There are certain parameters which have to be met. So if something is particularly valuable, it has to be replaced with something equally valuable or more valuable. So the specific credits required will differ from site to site and That also then has a bearing on value because all credits are sort of not created equal. Some of them are much more difficult to obtain, so they are much more valuable. But it is very much a free market at the moment and will remain so. And the price seems to vary quite widely on the deals that are being done. As a final example, when the nitrate neutrality issue became relevant down in the Solent catchment. Some deals were done with farmers down there, which meant that they agreed to stop all application of nitrates on their land in perpetuity or for a period of time, whereupon they were given payments by the developers and the developers' developments were facilitated that way.
0: And I can understand that trade-off that makes sense in terms of, you know, government policy is is, is quite clearly trying to reduce nitrate leakage, et cetera. And, and, and therefore, this is a sort of an objective being pushed by by legislation. I guess I'm just thinking about the kind of the perception of this growing kind of emerging asset class. Is there a risk that it could be seen that actually, you know, large businesses, corporates, keen to be green and so forth, end up sort of reducing economic activity in the rural environment. Is that a fair challenge?
1: I mean, I think there are lots of challenges around a lot of these sorts of um, natural capital markets. It's very important to prove additionality so that what you're doing is really helping the environment. And it's important to work with, you know, a reputable supplier of credit. So whoever is buying them knows that what they're buying is actually doing some kind of Good. I mean, there are a lot of people who think that you know that it is wrong per se to put a value on nature. You shouldn't be doing that. We should be sort of clamping down on the people who are omitting rather, rather than trying to create these markets. But I think it's inevitable that these markets will develop. So, you know, you've just got to, if you're in that market, you've got to sense check what it is that you're buying and who is selling it to you to make sure that you're not going to be accused of um, greenwashing because those allegations will certainly surface, um, already surfacing you know, around natural capital markets at the moment.
0: I guess um, there's a related challenge, I suppose. I I don't know if this is a fair example, but if you have two farmers next to each other, the first one's doing really good stuff. They've got wildflower meadows, they've got the coppice going, uh, they're looking after the landscape, and the the second farmer's developed a kind of barren, monocultural landscape. Trees and hedges have all gone. If someone pays that second farmer to kind of emulate the first farmer, is that fair or is that not where we're moving with this?
2: I think it probably depends. There are farmers for whom this makes infinite sense. Their land's less profitable, it's less productive, and therefore it's much better suited to take advantage of these kind of opportunities. There are farmers who are interested in this as well, and there are farmers who don't want to do this at all. They want to farm. And so I think that the market will naturally find its place, and the people who are interested and want to undertake these things will, and the ones that don't, won't. I think it will be great for areas which are less productive because it gives farmers an opportunity to be profitable in a different way that doesn't necessarily involve negative environmental impact. So if a farmer has to apply huge amounts of chemical onto their land in order to be productive, one could argue that it's better that they stop trying to produce wheat on that land with huge amounts of inputs and instead create benefits through biodiversity, carbon, sequestration, etc.
0: Andrew, just thinking about this sector, Isabel's explained how it's evolving quite rapidly. Is it fair to say the UK is kind of at the cutting edge of this type of development?
1: I'm not sure about cutting edge, but some of the UK's nature-based credit schemes, such as the Peatland Carbon Code and the Woodland Carbon Code, are considered among some of the best and the most robust in the world. So, the UK is doing particularly well in some aspects of it. Whether there's enough support being given to the farmers who are already doing a lot of these sorts of activities is another question. Farmers would probably argue no, but in terms of some of the credit-based schemes, we are doing quite well.
0: And Isabel, in terms of the activities that you're involved in, where do you sort of see the biggest growth or where do you expect to be busy advising clients in the next year or so?
2: I think what we hope to do is to find opportunities for our landowning clients to link those up with developers who are seeking to offset either carbon, biodiversity or other asset classes within the natural capital group in order to help them replace income which has been lost through the loss of environmental scheme income, through the risk posed by fluctuating commodity markets and to try and also give them an opportunity to improve their own land's natural capital accounts.
0: And final question to Andrew, in terms of farmland values, is this new demand, this new area of activity, is it set to make a big change to values or is that not where the influence is being felt?
1: The UK farmland market is so thin, there's very little farmland that comes up for sale at the moment. So when you have a new class of buyer come into the market, even if they're actually not buying a lot of the land, they're just interested in it and putting in bids, It inevitably has an influence on the market and pushes up values.
0: Andrew, Isabel, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you very much, Liam. Thank you.
0: It just leaves me time to remind you all to sign up to one of our dedicated property market newsletters. And please subscribe to Intelligence Talks wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to Andrew and Isabel.